on today's episode, Do We Overtrain or Under-Recover? with Dr. Izzy Smith. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. When it comes to, I guess, lessons that I've learned from doing the Run Smarter podcast and interviewing so many researchers and so many health professionals, I think this is number one, one of the lessons that I had no idea about or had not much emphasis on until I interviewed Dr. Izzy Smith to talk about this topic around overuse injuries or injury recovery, uh, whether you actually overtrain or under recover and the equation between the two. So I thought it's a must that I share it with this podcast with the PHT podcast. And yeah, so today we have Dr. Izzy Smith. Um, This episode was from the Run Smarter podcast and it was in the middle of what I called recovery month. We had a theme that ran out, uh, ran throughout December in 2020, where there was um, two episodes a week. One was like an interview with a health professional. The next was me doing a solo episode. And they're all about topics of recovery and not necessarily from like a running injury, but just from say marathons or ultra marathons. And this is one lesson that particularly applies to when it comes to rehab or when it comes to overcoming an injury. And so at the start of the episode, I had a run through had a listen through um, the other day and there are a few things that we need to catch up on. So I briefly touch on this house analogy when it comes to recovery. And so when you're building a house, a house that needs to become resilient, uh, we think about the weather as being part or like when your house is subject to harsh weather, we think of that as like external load on the body. And so it's okay for the, the weather to kind of make some cracks in the glass or to knock some hinges off a door or to like lift some tiles off a roof, as long as we're replacing it with something a bit stronger next time. And so <clears throat> that weather kind of roughs around the house a little bit and the weak links within that house um, are made quite clear, but we repair those weak links with something stronger so that next time when the, um, the house is subject to harsh weather, we have the same process. We're a little bit more robust. We're a little bit more resilient. And so this can kind of reflect what happens when we are recovering and when we're recovering from injury because it's not the the exercise itself that makes you stronger or makes you resilient. It's the same way that when this weather is battering this house, it's not the weather that makes the house stronger. It's the repair afterwards. And so when it comes to your rehab and your exercise and your return to cardio kind of exercises like running, it's the recovery after that bout of exercise that actually restores and rebuilds. That's the really important part when it comes to recovery. And so we talk well, I glance over that analogy as expected knowledge. Um, So just thought I'd run you guys up to speed. 
So these recovery tips um, can apply to generic kind of training recovery, but can also apply to injury. So let's dive in and take these very valuable lessons on board. Dr. Izzy Smith is a endocrinologist. She studies hormone health and also women's health. She is a podcast host. It's slightly different. It's called Behind the Uniform and it's talking around mental health. Um, Dr. Izzy Smith is, <clears throat> her Instagram account is Dr. Izzy K. Smith. Uh, I'll include the links in the show notes. And I just love the work that she does. And similar to what this podcast um, is revolved around, she helps people understand their health, pe- helps them understand mental health and does a lot of posts and tries to get a lot of awareness out there and recent evidence. And it's kind of like that direct to the public type of content. So really love her work. We talk today around overtraining or under-recovering. And I did hear um, Izzy Smith on another podcast, which again, I talk about in the interview. I'll, I won't um, delve too much into it, but she talks about this concept of either overtraining or under-recovering. Back to our last episode with our house analogy. Is it the weather that we subject our house to, or is it our lack of being able to recover from the weathered storm that is decreasing our performance or increasing our risk of injury or just that inability to thrive as a runner. And so we talk about this concept in a bit more detail, particularly around the hormones and stress and these hormones and chemicals that circulate throughout our body that hinder our ability to recover or enhance our ability to recover. It's really interesting stuff. If we need to understand recovery, we need to understand what's going on in our body And Dr. Izzy Smith does a perfect job of explaining that without getting too technical. And yeah, we talk, we dive into stress and how stress hinders recovery. We talk about the, whether there's any difference when it comes to psychological stress compared to physical strength, like going out for a run or doing a workout. And yeah, then we do some listener Q and A's and tie it all up in a nice little message. So I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Izzy Smith. Thank you for coming on and thank you for coming on to our recovery month. I'm excited to talk about this theme and talk about your expertise. So uh, let's start. Thanks for coming on. Uh, no worries, Brody. I've been a fan of your podcast and your Instagram, so I'm excited to now be a part of it. Brilliant. Likewise, the feeling's mutual. So uh, let's start off by talking about your um, your field of expertise and how you got into the, the interest that you're in right now. So I'm a medical doctor. I have been doctor for seven years now. I had a bit of a funny path of deciding what I wanted to do career-wise. I'm now a endocrinology doctor, which is hormone health. I initially wanted to be working cancer, which I decided was the most depressing, sad thing and definitely not right for me. I toyed around with sports medicine as a specialty for a little while. However, I realised my passion wasn't, you know, treating injuries and I also think some parts of sports medicine can be a little bit non-evidence-based, which doesn't completely sit with me and that's where I fell in love with the concept of sports endocrinology which is you know hormone health which dictates so much to do with our recovery our performance and I think it's an area of sports that hasn't really been you know I think it's the next frontier of athletic performance I think we now know how to train people really well and the next way to you know improve athletic success 
we'll be more focusing on how do we get people to recover better. And our hormones are such a big part of that, you know, the you know, training stimulus adaption. So that's my, I guess, what I'm doing career-wise is, you know, focusing on sports endocrinology. And that's on the background of me, myself being a very passionate athlete. I'm probably not very good, but I make up for that in enthusiasm and passion. So I'm now, you know, love running and dabbling in triathlon. Yeah. Talk, talk about your, your endurance experience at the moment. So you said you've done a, a bit of running, a bit of triathlons. Um, what's been on the list? What's on your bucket list and what have you completed? So I was training for UTA 50 this year, which as everyone has experienced, most events have been cancelled from COVID. But my running background is I grew up in Tasmania and I started running as a medical student mainly to manage stress. I then did the first big event was the Point to Pinnacle, which is a half marathon from the base of, you know, Hobart up the top of Mount Wellington, which is a, you know, 1300 metres of elevation. That's where I fell in love with running. Um, and since then, I've done quite a lot of, you know, trail runs. I like the longer stuff around the marathon distance. Next big things on my list is a half Ironman in Macquarie in May. And I know, you know, once you get the buzz, I thought I was just going to do a sprint distance triathlon and then that moved to an Olympic and then I'm doing a half Ironman. I know down the track I need to do a full Ironman or Iron Woman, as I like to call it. Yeah, very good. Um, the concept, well, just talking about your background and what your interest is, I am pumped that I've got you on just to share around recovery for athletes. And I was, I know we've been following each other's content for a long time now. It wasn't until I think last month I heard you talk on um, Trang Ewan's podcast, The Athlete's Garage. And you're talking a little bit about recovery, sickness, that kind of stuff. And you did mention that athletes tend to, when they're injured, they tend to, or it's due to either overtraining or under-recovering. And I'm like, that's such a perfect concept. It's such a perfect idea, which I hadn't heard of before. Now I hear it all the time, but you were the first one to actually get into my ears and get that concept in there. And I'm like, I've actually stolen it several times being on other podcasts as well. So thanks for that. But I'll be honest, I want, Brody, I think I stole it from someone else. So yeah. really clear. Like I said, it's so simple. It must be around for so long, but it, it's such a good idea that yes, you can overtrain, which the concept is introduced several times on my podcast. So people know that they can do too much too soon, which leads to injury, or they could do exactly the same as what they're currently doing, but still get an overuse injury from under recovering. So can you maybe just explain this concept of under recovering and what a recreational runner would need to know about that? I guess when we think about our training and our athletic goals, we just think about the hard work. When in reality, and we think it's the hard work that gets us fitter, stronger, faster. However, in reality, it's the rest after the hard work where we do the adaptions from the stress of training, where we, that's when we're getting the benefit. So I like to say, you know, we don't get fitter, faster, stronger from training. We get fitter, faster, stronger from the rest we do after training. So that recovery is when we get our adaptions, when we get our gains, and there's so many factors that impact that, you know, post-training recovery and our potential to get the full maximum benefit from our training, as well as, you know, recovering for the next session. So from a recreational runner perspective, um, really important things to think about are what are you doing beyond your running? So for people, for example, who may, you know, you're a physiotherapist, you might be on your feet for 10 hours a day. If you're doing a training session in the morning, you know, really hard, 
and then on your fetal day, your body doesn't have time to recover properly and you know get its adaptions. Or if you're having a rest day, which we know is really important for training, is to have you know one rest day at least you know once a week. Um, I think you might have shared something a while ago that was for athletes that were having less than two rest days or one to rest day a week had a much increased chance of getting an injury. But so, you know, so looking at your rest days, are you properly resting on your rest days? If you've got a lot of psychological stress, you're on your feet, you're doing more than 10,000 steps, that's not a rest day. So my thing is, you know, when we talk about under-recovering, it's, you know, are you getting the maximum benefit from your training? Great. And I think it's my very, very first episode of the podcast was adaptation education and making sure people understand the importance of the body adapting to the loads you wanted to put it through or how strong you want to get. And it's, it's awesome that you illustrate that point that it's not during the actual exercise where your body adapts, your body actually adapts when you're not exercising and you are trying to utilize that recovery session as much as you can. And that might necessarily, might not necessarily be not running. It's actually like complete load off and, you know, maybe walking around and going to work, your body's still maybe not be, you might not feel like you're exercising, but you're definitely not recovering. Is that right? Yeah. And the other really important factor to talk about is psychological stress. We think about stress when we train, it's a very physical stress on our body and we're flooding our system with stress hormones, such as noradrenaline and cortisol. However, when we are psychologically stressed, we are releasing the same hormones. We're releasing the noradrenaline, we're releasing the cortisol that prevent the rest and the adaptions. So if we are you know, getting pumped at work, if you're a uni student and you're studying for exams, your body's actually stressed you know, all the time and you're not giving it that time to recover. And your individual cells, you know, when we are psychologically stressed, our muscle cells can't really tell the difference between, you know, physical training stress or psychological stress because it's the same hormones that are acting on every single cell in our bodies. So I think that's something really important for people to look into is psychological stress and the impact that has on training load. And we know with athletes, there's a lot of studies that show, you know, looking at university and college students um, just before exams, their training and performance usually drops. And it shows, you know, your total load is impacted by that stress and you might not be able to push as hard just because you're under-recovered from when you're starting. Keeping in mind that the listeners don't have much of a scientific background, we can try and keep this as simplistic as we can. Can you, in your um, best way, explain why we can't recover when these hormones are circulating around the body? So firstly, I'll explain what a hormone is. So hormones are our body's messenger systems. Often people think of hormones as just being sex hormones like testosterone or estrogen. However, in reality, we have, you know, nine, ten different hormone systems from, you know, melatonin that tells us to sleep to our adrenal glands that produce cortisol that's important with blood pressure management, blood sugar management. Um, Your thyroid produces hormones that manages metabolism. And so hormones work by traveling to different parts of your body. That's what makes it a hormone. It travels through the blood and then acts on a a different organ. When I talked about the stress hormones, we, you know, we evolved from our hunter-gatherers and our behavior has changed very rapidly in the last thousand years, but our bodies haven't evolved very much. So often we hear about the flight or fight response. 
And that's, you know, when we're stressed, we get that big flood of noradrenaline and cortisol because that primal brain thinks there's a threat. You know, there's a, I don't know, some kind of woolly mammoth that we need to run away from because it's going to eat us. So when we're psychologically stressed, we get big floods of stress hormones and they prepare our body for a fight. That's to, you know, run really fast, our blood vessels dilate, our blood sugar levels go up um, to, you know, prepare our body. In that primal brain, when you're stressed, you don't, it doesn't worry about recovery. It's not caring about, you know, healing your body from the day. It has more important things to do. It's trying to keep you safe. The issue is now in our, you know, switched on 24-7, stressful jobs, you know, never having any time to unwind. We're often stressed all the time. So we have those high levels of noradrenaline and cortisol, then, you know, big two stress hormones. If they're always going to be high, our body's never going to be able to go back into that repair system to recover the muscles, you know, and, and let those adaptions happen because of always thinking, okay, I need to keep you safe on this threat. So that's why, you know, things like meditation and mindfulness and winding down, not just important for our minds, but also really important for our bodies. Okay. So from a hormone perspective, it's sort of treated the same, whether you are under psychological stress, like exams or work or kids and family, all that kind of thing, compared to actual physical stress, which would be doing a hard, intense workout, that kind of thing. Absolutely. A hundred percent correct. Wow. Okay. And then goes without saying which well, what you said before if you have that noradrenaline cortisol circulating around in the body the body then won't have the opportunity to recover because it's the it's the it's the preparing that, for a fight or flight yeah, yeah exactly. it's not preparing to rest digest recover heal your body from the day's you know physical training right i wanted to cover stress as the the general topic of today but before we dive into maybe specifics are there any other other common areas around um, this whole like preventative of adaptation that people underutilize or some recreational runners might undervalue that you see that's like inhibiting their recovery? Yes, the most obvious simple one would be sleep, and I think mm-hmm. that goes for health and well-being a lot. Often we you know want to cherry pick the things at the top. You know, we think eating goji berries or, you know, superfoods or whatever rubbish is important for our health when it's really the basics of, you know, eating enough fruits and veggies, getting enough sleep, doing a bit of exercise. And recovery is the same. You know, sleep is the most sleep and managing, you know, mental well-being would be the most important things for recovery. We are humans and we are, you know, complex biology and our bodies are designed to have, you know, eight hours sleep. We try and shortcut this, you know, we're trying to, you know, we've got artificial lights now keeping us awake for longer, but really our bodies are designed to, you know, sleep when it goes dark. And if you think about melatonin and, you know, that that's released when it goes dark, it makes sense. Um, You know, biologically we're supposed to sleep when it's dark, which is eight hours. People try and shortcut this and think they can, you know, cope with sleeping only six hours a night. But like I said, we're we're biology, we're not robots. So I think prioritising sleep is, you know, so important. Um, also looking after mental well-being and you know I'm not a dietitian but the other one is you know making sure nutritionally you're meeting your needs and something I think a lot of runners fall into the mistake of is thinking you know protein is for your gym junkies who are trying to get big muscles and like I say running is you know thousands of single leg squats over and over again we actually have a really high rate of muscle breakdown so making sure you're getting enough protein as well as your other macros so definitely you know 
the basis of important of good recovery. Cool. I did want to get another guest on later in the month to talk around sleep. So I think uh, it's important that people realize the importance of hormones when it comes to sleep, when it comes to stress. So very good that we illustrate that. Um, but we might uh, hone in on the stress component for today's episode. Sure. I will say just one thing about the sleep and hormones is yeah. it's our circadian rhythm and our hormones are on a 24-hour clock. So, you know, our cortisol, our testosterone, our growth hormone, all, you know, um, fluctuate during the day and that's dependent on sleep. So that is why, you know, as well as sleeping eight hours, also, you know, when we sleep and, you know, our body clock is quite important as well. Cool. Um, if we are just adding in a little bit more value, any tips for people to help improve their sleep? Everyone is different, um, but some really simple stuff, you know, cutting out caffeine after midday, getting off our phones at night, you know, the blue light comes in through, looks looks at our retina, through our supranucleus, supranucleus goes through our brain, suppresses melatonin release. So, you know, cutting out blue light is really important, having some time to wind down, getting up at the same time every day, um, and also trying to avoid napping too late in the day. Brilliant. Fantastic. I could talk about sleep for an hour, but these are really <laughs> basic things. Personally, I love um, the Calm app, which is like sleep music and sleep stories. As a, someone who's been a shift worker, I know that's been a complete game changer for my sleep. Yeah. I've used Calm, the Calm app as well. And yeah, also a big fan. Regarding stress, if stress hinders recovery, uh, what are your some, what are the recommendations that you might suggest if let's just say someone's training for a marathon and they've got a job promotion and that is like some unavoidable high levels of stress for a certain period of time, but they still want to continue building their marathon training plan. If they've recognized that they're under high levels of stress, what would be some recommendations to um, reduce their risk of injury and help aid recovery? I feel like you would be able to answer this question as well, Brody. But um, something I would talk about is accepting that you might not be able to train at as high intensities during high levels of psychological stress. As I said, your body already has a certain amount of load, so it just might not be able to tolerate that higher load of a very high-intensity session. So that is something I would recommend of maybe decreasing the load but maintaining the volume. Obviously, with the job stress, um, you know, that is unavoidable still trying to find some time to actively decrease those stress hormones through, you know, whether it's mindfulness, listening to a you know, guided meditation. Um, there's actually now quite a lot of evidence that he's developing for things, you know, activities like mindfulness and meditation. And this is someone, as I hate trying to meditate, I'm terrible at it. I'm trying to get better. And it's something I think people need to accept. It takes time, you know, learning to meditate and become mindful is it's like getting fit. We're not going to be really good at it straight away and it can take a bit of time, but the evidence shows it's really great. Um, also, the other thing, you know, when you do have that stressful job, trying to still get in enough sleep, avoiding alcohol as well, because that's going to muck up your sleep. That's going to increase your stress and seeing what other stressors in your life you can take out. I'm all about outsourcing. So if you've got a really busy, stressful job and it's important to you, what other stresses can you get in your life? You know, I get food prep. And I'm very fortunate I get my house clean because, you know, removing those other stressful activities, you know, helps me focus my energy on the things I'm really passionate about. 
Yeah, cool. And I know that is an incredibly privileged answer. So I'm sorry, <laughs> I know not everyone has the financial capacity to get a house cleaner, but it's, you know, removing the stressors that, you know, aren't a high priority. And it just goes to show that you can be creative at identifying other stresses that might be around and being creative in removing those or allocating those to other people uh, so that your total psychological stress is decreased. And that would ultimately lead that mean that you can start um, recovering or at least tolerating a little bit more load if you decrease your levels of stress, which is really cool. I talk about the stress cup and we all have a stress cup that at one point it's going to fill up and whether that's psychological stress and physical stress, you know, and we are only human. We are biology. There's only so much we can handle. So seeing what you can do to try and take out that stress cup before it overflows. And, you know, physical stress and psychological stress, I say, are quite common because we can only handle so much psychologically until it will break. In the same way, our bodies can only handle so much physically until it will break. So, you know, seeing what we can do to take away some of that load. And as you said, in the stressful job, if someone's on their feet all the time, you know, can they have some time off their feet? ways you can decrease both your physical and your psychological stress. Yeah. I might get a bit of um, backlash for this, but I'm also a fan of knowing that psychological stress in a lot of situations is kind of like internally driven. Like it's the person themselves that makes it stressful rather than like someone could have a stressful job, but it just doesn't affect them the same way it might affect someone else. Like someone might affect psychologically their constantly wired up with high levels of stress because they're taking on like say personal responsibilities or they just don't respond too well to either being yelled at or having uh like deadlines or pressure that kind of thing and well, that's of, of course that's you know that makes sense and we are all different and that would be you know working and being self-aware mm. and working on your you know your own mental fitness i think often when we talk about mental health we talk about it as if it's mental illness and then people being really mentally well. In reality, there's a very big spectrum between the two. And most people sit somewhere in the middle. And at different periods, you might be a little bit more, you know, mentally unwell, you might not have a mental illness, but you'll be under more psychological stress. And the reality is of life, hard things are going to happen. You know, COVID has taught us that hardships will happen and it's about developing skills and a support network. So when those hard things happen, it doesn't have such an impact and load on you. So you're right, you know, everyone will adapt to different experiences and experience stress in different ways. And psychological stress itself isn't necessarily bad. That's how we become more resilient. It's about being aware, like with our physical training, you know, that's short stresses on the body, um, being aware and, you know, getting some practices in place. So you decrease that mental stress and, you know, slide back towards the mentally well. Great. And yeah, having that support network, like you suggested, and perhaps using like the Calm app and practicing like some self-awareness or meditation or breathing exercises, they're all really good strategies as well. Back to the scenario of someone who might be training for a marathon and experiencing levels, high levels of stress. I think there's also just knowing that you can, if you're following a running program, you can swap out some days here and there. You can adjust your week let's just say on a Sunday, Monday, you've recognized you are particularly stressed and you haven't been sleeping too well, just take out your hard session and replace it with an easy session. Do your hard session later in the week when you have started sleeping better or you have felt a little bit more recovered. That might be a really nice strategy as well. And the good thing to point out is 
if you are really under-recovered, your body's not going to be able to tolerate the load and get the benefits from that high-intensity session anyway. Mm. So apart from the fact it's going to, you know, just make you feel probably worse, you're not going to get the benefit from that really hard session anyway. And it can be really hard, especially for type A personalities and they have a running plan that says, you know, I do this and this, and it's really nice to tick those things off the box, you know, tick them off as we go. And I think that's as we become more experienced as a runner, we get better learning and recognizing our own body and when we do need to have those days off. And, you know, I think that's where you'll see those really, you know, high elite athletes, they know when they need to have a session off. It's not, they're not monitoring their heart rate. They're not doing anything tech savvy to know they're under recovered. Most of the time they just know their body's well enough and know they need to, you know, decrease the intensity or take a rest day. Yeah. I did have the question written down around, should we base our decisions off feel or is there a way that we can measure our stress and kind of say, all right, I'm not doing well in this area. Let me make this decision. Or is it like what you said, just what athletes are doing, they just know. You know, it's the year 2020 and we have so many different wearables and weight and monitor track, absolutely everything. It's important to recognize a lot of the things we do use for tracking, such as our sleep monitoring, our heart rate monitoring, a lot of them aren't, haven't been calibrated to see if they're evidence-based. So, you know, I don't know if my Garmin, when it tells me I've had two or three hours of deep sleep, we don't know if that's actually true. Um, so that's something that's important to recognize. Two, there's most of the evidence shows that we have all the data in the world, but that never is, hasn't been shown to be more effective of being able to recognize, you know, the feeling of, if you're under or over, you know, if you're not recovered or ready for the next session. The third thing is sometimes those tracking, you know, all the different data we can collect become, can become a bit of a stressor on itself. You know, if you do have an important game or training session and you feel good, but then your watch told you, hey, you are, you know, under-recovered or you haven't got enough sleep, but you feel great, that's probably going to stress you out more and impact your performance. So I think, you know, there's definitely benefits of different technology and data but it's important to recognize one we don't know how evidence-based it is and two the best evidence we've got doesn't really show it's more effective than knowing how we feel i definitely recognize that when because i wear an aura ring when i go to sleep and i definitely recognize i shouldn't be paying attention to the sleep stages that it gives me i mm. i think in the past listening to sleep scientists and that you really need to go into a sleep lab and have like those electrodes on the head to really measure what phase of the sleeping cycle you're in and like i said yeah you need the polysonography where we measure all the electrodes on your brain which you know obviously the watch doesn't do yeah absolutely um if we're looking at someone who is particularly stressed and hasn't done any meditation or the calm app or practicing mindfulness or breathing or anything what would be your recommendations for like somewhere to start what they they don't have a, a high education on like, you know, strategies to do, what would be your first starting point? Learning how to be present um, and not distracted by technology. I really encourage people to go for walks without their phone. You know, so often we are connected to devices 24 seven and we're never actually just present in ourselves. And I think we need to learn how to be present in ourselves because that's how we start to recognise how we're feeling. Are we exhausted? Are we stressed? And how can we become self-aware if we're constantly distracted by 
devices, laptops, movies. And, you know, I'm no better than anyone else. Sometimes I'm sitting at home watching a movie with my laptop on my lap doing work and I've got my phone. I'm like, this is just absolutely ridiculous. So, yes, learning to just be present in yourself. So, you know, whether it's a walk without your phone, um, you know, sitting down by the beach for 10 minutes and just sitting there. Um, so, yeah, I really recommend trying to take time off technology or even reading a book, you know, reading a book, you need to be present. You can't be, if you're watching a movie, you can do what I do with my laptop and my phone. Reading a book, you have to be present. And I think it can be quite confronting when you realise how hard it is to read a book these days because we're just so used to our attention constantly being grabbed. See, that would be my advice, just some really simple measures. Cool, cool. One of your topics when you're talking to Trang that I really love that I haven't talked much about on the podcast was sickness and your um, boosting or inhibiting your immunity. Can, if we're under high levels of stress and we are under recovering, are we at more a higher risk of developing some level of sickness? Short answer, yes. Um, so our immune function is definitely um, most active when we are sleeping. And when that parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxed nervous system, is predominantly on. Because if you think back to what I said about, you know, that primal person who's running away from the woolly mammoth that wants to eat them, at that time, their body's priority is not their immune system or fighting an infection. And, you know, the cortisol actually has a suppressive effect on our immune system. So, you know, high levels of stress do increase the risk of getting, you know, coughs and colds. The other thing is sleep deprivation. There was a study a while ago, it's a great study, they showed people who were sleeping six hours or less or night, they injected um, rhinovirus, which is the most common uh, virus that causes coughs and colds. They injected rhinovirus into people's nasal flares and people that slept less than six hours were 4.5 times more likely to get a cough or cold than the people that were sleeping seven hours or more. And right. if you think about it, like, that's amazing. Um, yeah. And I know for me, whenever I have a late night, if I, you know, go out, um, I always get a cough or a cold afterwards. And the other thing, apart from getting sick, you're also going to probably miss a few training sessions. And we know consistency is one of the most important, you know, predictors of athletic success. And so, yes, one sleep deprivation has a big impact on our immune function. You know, most antibodies are made when we're sleeping. Immune function is, you know, predominantly working at night. And that makes sense. You know, when you're sick, you just bloody want to sleep. You know, sometimes you'll go home and sleep five hours in the middle of the day. And like, what is going on? And that's your immune system, you know, being active in your body telling you, you need to rest because your immune system needs to, you know, be working hard right now. And yes, the psychological stress, cortisol has a suppressive effect on our immune system. Okay. And I think if someone to say is trying to become a better runner, trying to increase their running performance, trying to prepare for a race, they may have experienced how, one or two weeks of a sickness can knock them out and set them back in their, their training plans as well. So I think not only are we trying to boost recovery to reduce our risk of injury, but also reduce the risk of sickness can be really beneficial for performance. And yeah. And something I would say of, you know, someone who's sick for a couple of weeks, I really recommend if you do have a cough or cold, just completely resting for two days. Our bodies because of all of those factors, you know, cortisol and sleep being so important, if we're trying to push on with a low-grade cold, you know, we might be able to do our training sessions. They're not going to be very good. But that's when you see a cold linger for two weeks. 
you know, stay at home, have two proper days of rest where you're not, you know, you're not trying to get work done, you're actually cycle, you know, psychological and physical, you know, rest, and that will get you so much better. You, I mean, get you better so much quicker and be able to get you back to training at, you know, full capacity much quicker. Yeah, and that kind of ties in with what we are talking about at the start. If, you, if you're sick and your body's trying to fight a sickness and you're say, oh, let's just do a light session or let me just like stay on my feet all day. I won't do a hard session, but let me just go for a run and I'll just take it super easy. You're still like giving yourself some physical stress that mm. like we said before, we need to flip the equation and really get into that rest recovery mode rather than that um, exercise mode. A hundred percent. You want to keep, you know, your heart rate low. And I, cause I do say to athletes, I always get asked, should I train when I'm sick? And I say, you know, really trying to keep your heart rate, if you are going to train, zone one. You know, I don't want it going above 120, 130, which for most people means, you know, a walk or a very slow job. Because we know once you start to get your heart rate up, that's when your, you know, sympathetic nervous system kicks in and you do have those suppressive immune effects. Great. We're, we're getting better, more value than I have written down on my page here. So this is great. We're delving into a lot more. Is there, if a runner is loving this and like learning a whole bunch, while we're on this, the topic of like hormones, are there any other hormones or any other topics around hormones that a runner might need to know when it comes to recovery? I could get a little bit complex and we could talk about, you know, growth hormones and what type of training we do for, you know, growth hormone peaks. But I think it's probably getting a little bit scientific and a bit theoretical. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I guess, which is very, very relevant is the importance of our sex hormones or athletic performance. So that's, you know, testosterone and estrogen um, so for men and women. And, you know, testosterone is also important for women as well. And that's important for, you know, muscle growth that type of thing. So relative energy deficiency syndrome is getting a lot of press at the moment, which is excellent. And that stands for relative energy. Oh, I already said it, REDS, sorry. Red S, relative energy deficiency syndrome in sport. You may have heard it being called female athlete triad. And that's standard for disordered eating, losing periods, and, you know, bone health problems. You know, repetitive stress fractures is what people say. Have they realised it occurs in men as well? So, you know, men can get low testosterone and that's where you'll start seeing decreased performance, increased coughs and colds. And obviously they don't have, you know, periods as a warning sign, but, you know, loss of morning erection is what we say is the kind of the equivalent of amenorrhea in women and amenorrhea standing for loss of periods. And so that is, you know, something that we see in very lean athletes or athletes that are dropping a lot of weight quickly. However, it's also important to recognise that it's not just in lean people. If someone, you know, increases their training load really quickly without increasing their nutrition, their body is going to say, I don't have enough energy um, and it will shut down different organ systems. So not shut down, but it will give less energy. So what we see is, you know, people getting coughs and colds, they lose their periods, their bone health goes off. And that's, you know, relevant, very relevant to recreational and professional athletes. I think it's worth when we're talking about this, because now we're delving into nutrition, which is great. <laughs> um, it's Jumping a bit to, out of my lane, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's in, oh, I love it. It's important to recognize that recovery, like your body needs energy to recover. Like it needs nutrients. It needs, while you're resting, it's utilizing the energy stores. 
to recover goes to the muscles, bones, tendons, everything like that. It's redirecting and reprioritizing exactly. where it sends that energy. And so what you're saying is someone's like dramatically, like if they're not getting the amount of nutrients required for recovery, then the body's going to use all of that energy stores when you're physically working out, but then it just won't have anything left when it comes to the recovery component side of things. And so that's why nutrition is really important. Make sure that's uh, on our and, priority list. And that's unfortunately, we see athletes who think on their rest days, they don't need to eat as much when really, you know, adaptions and you know, physical improvements, it's a catabolic process. We need those extra calories. So, you know, rest days, nutrition is super important as well. And like you said, it's, you know, our body will be giving energy to, you know, just be able to do the training, but it won't get the performance improvements and other things will start going wrong. You know, bone health, you know, short-term infertility, immune problems and, you know, mental health as well. Um, you know, not having enough you know, nutrients, calories just for your brain to function properly. Yeah. Let's dive into some listener Q&As. And this is a really nice segue to what Carl asks. He, well... A man a few words he just put supplements dash magnesium question mark and i assume he's asking is there any supplements that we can take to help recovery and what are your thoughts on magnesium for recovery so first we'll go back to saying remember the most important thing we can do is you know adequate sleep managing our mental health then getting enough calories and you know a varied diet then once we get more towards the top, we're looking at things like, you know, massage, ice baths. And that's when I think, you know, supplements would probably go a bit around, you know, around those top areas. Um, magnesium is probably, you know, ugh, um, very popular with athletes. And, you know, there's a little bit of evidence that it can actually help with sleep and relaxation, not strong evidence, but it's important to recognise that it's hard to get good evidence in athletic performance and muscular some musculoskeletal things. It is a bit easier because magnesium is a tablet, so you can have a placebo. But, you know, there's just not the drug companies doing these big power trials because, you know, magnesium is cheap as cheap, so why would they? Um, but, yes, one, there is evidence that magnesium can help a little bit with sleep and relaxation. We know sleep is very important for recovery. Two, if people are magnesium deficient, and this is a really important concept to talk about in supplements. You know, saying supplements don't benefit people is provided their levels are replete you know um if you're deficient in vitamin b or vitamin d or magnesium you know supplementing them of course will make you feel better and help you perform better so magnesium deficiency is not uncommon so for people that are deplete they would definitely get benefits the third thing i would say is placebo effect is is real and there's nothing wrong with placebo effect and you know people do feel like taking magnesium whether it is helping their stiff muscles or not. If they think it helps, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Magnesium is a pretty hard supplement to overdose on. Um, you know, as a doctor, I've never seen any complications from hypermagnesemia. Um, so I think if people feel like it's working, you know, why not? The other thing is, you know, we are now seeing popularity of magnesium sprays and creams. There isn't really the evidence to show that magnesium could be systemically absorbed. You know, if we're Put, our skin's a pretty great barrier. Um, you know, it's there to keep nasty things out of our body. So do we know the magnesium is absorbed through the skin into the muscles? We don't. So I would probably recommend we know more oral magnesium than the creams. Maybe the creams have a bit better placebo effect. 
also recognizing that magnesium can cause diarrhea and you know running guts plus lots of magnesium supplements could be problematic um but yeah i think anecdotally we see a lot of athletes saying it helps with cramps and stiff muscles okay so if anything for the recovery component there is low level events so they can get it can aid with sleep but it's kind of like something you might try as uh, at the top of the pyramid. Whereas we want to make sure that you are getting good sleep, nutrition, or like dealing with the the stresses in your life as the base. And then you might want to try once you've covered all of those, you might want to try some magnesium. Maybe do you get blood tests to see if you're low in magnesium? You can, but the reality of doing blood tests are the levels fluctuate so much from a day to day basis. Um, and the other thing with blood tests for things like magnesium, magnesium, vitamin D, they're done on a general population. We don't have, you know, trials showing, you know, what's the peak magnesium levels for athletes that are training, you know, one, two times a day. So you can get blood tests if, you know, to see if you were deficient. However, I don't really think there'd be that much utility in them, in honesty, because one, levels fluctuate on a day-to-day basis. Two, the cutoffs of what we decided normal are based on a general population of a, you know, a confidence interval of where most people fit. Yeah. Any other supplements that you think might help someone who's doing everything correctly, but wants to um, get that extra 1% for recovery, anything you might suggest? Yeah. I won't go into sports supplements because that's a bit out of my lane, you know, correct, correct, beta alanine and those type of things. Have a vitamin D is something that is, you know, in the literature quite a lot at the moment. And I think it was BMJ did a good study showing that athletes, supplemented with vitamin D, it can help performance and athletes may be at increased risk of vitamin D deficiency and have higher requirements than the general population. Um, I, not that anecdotes are evidence, um, but I, you know, I supplement with vitamin D. Um, I'm really worried about, you know, I'm very cautious about skin cancer and sun damage. So I think, you know, vitamin D is one that lots of athletes could benefit from. Vitamin D, magnesium, I think they would be the main ones. You know, the varied diet is definitely going to be the most important one. The other thing is, you know, we're seeing a massive increase in plant-based athletes. Um, you know, I'm one of them. Um, but, you know, having enough adequate protein post-training, we are seeing evidence, especially if people are training twice a day, for improved recovery with protein supplementation. Okay. So if you find that you're lacking in protein, if you find you're lacking in vitamin D, make sure that they're they're supplemented or make sure that you're getting adequate levels of those to help performance and aid recovery. Spot on. Okay, great. Um, our next Q&A question comes from Amanda and she asks around anti-inflams. She's heard a couple of things, whether a couple of different opinions to have anti-inflams before a run or during a run or after a run or not taking them at all. And so she's heard all these different um, opinions and wondering if we could help with um, clarifying a lot of this. She also mentioned that it's mainly for her arthritic knees. So it's mainly around that condition. So um, can we clear this up at all? Without, you know, seeing someone's knee MRIs and knowing, you know, their grade of osteoarthritis and their medical comorbidities, I definitely can't. And that's why, you know, especially asking advice from, you know, your running friends or your coach or, no offence, your physio who probably doesn't have that background in prescribing medications and some of the, you know, side effects and complications. 
there's really no one size fits all for people and it's about you know individual basis however i would say so first just talking about what an anti-inflammatory medication is um they work on you know the cox one and two enzyme pathways and they decrease kind of prostaglandins that can cause inflammation and that and, and pain so they are that's why they're called an anti-inflammatory um a few things you know one in mild osteoarthritis it's important to talk about pain and what you know slightly sore knees needs mean the significance of pain we know in arthritis you know exercise is actually and physical activity is quite good for arthritis and it can you know actually prevent worsening so thinking about what the pain is what are the concerns is it are you worried that the pain is exacerbating the arthritis and what are your goals for taking the anti-inflammatories because you can't get through the run without them or are you concerned that the pain in itself is you know a warning sign and bad the other thing would be um you know i would be concerned if people were relying on anti-inflammatories to run if they couldn't get through a run without those anti-inflammatories you know these medications do have side effects you know looking at gi ulceration um increased risk of bleeding um and you know i'll talk a little bit about kidney injury for endurance events and anti-inflammatories um so yes I, I wouldn't want someone to have to rely on anti-inflammatories all the time you know occasionally if you're a little bit sore you know if you're doing a lot of kilometers training for an ultra or a marathon you're going to have aches and pains that's the reality of it um and you know an occasional anti-inflammatory is fine um and then thirdly you know if we're looking at people with quite severe arthritis people do take anti-inflammatories you know all the time that would really be that severe osteoarthritis where I don't think people would be able to run. So, so that's a bit of an all over the place answer. But one, I would say, you know, anti-inflammatories, they're not going to, you know, worsen the arthritis or the knee pain. Two, I wouldn't want someone, though, needing them every single run. That would be a bit of a red flag for me, and I think you probably need to see a specialist. Um, three, you know, how bad is the pain? It doesn't necessarily mean there's damage and is it actually arthritis? Could it be patellofemoral syndrome? Is there something else going on? And I think for complex issues like this, this is when a sports medicine physician can be really great because if you see a orthopedic surgeon, sometimes they might just say, I'll oh, just stop running. Um, to runners, that's like you know, world shattering. Sports medicine physicians really want to keep people training and keep people running, but they've got that medical background of knowing when it's appropriate to prescribe medications and some non-operative you know, measures for things like arthritis. Very well said on such a <laughs> complex topic. <laughs> um, the other thing I'm just going to say about, sorry, anti-inflammatories is, you know, a lot of endurance events now are banning them because they do increase the risk of kidney injury, which can, you know, result in rhabdomyolysis, I'm going to say that muscle breakdown. So they can decrease the blood flow to kidneys. You know, a 45-minute run, you know, half marathon, probably fine. You know, running 10, 12 hours, I definitely wouldn't want people to be taking anti-inflammatories. Okay. A few things I will add. The When it comes to the arthritic condition, if we're talking about cortisol and these hormones that circulate around the body, if someone is getting decreased levels of sleep and is under particular high levels of stress and it circulates a lot of cortisol in the body, that can actually be a direct correlation to arthritic like sensitivity like the structures around let's just say it's an arthritic knee and that kind of thing and that making sure that all of those concepts and all of those recovery strategies are in place and not just like 
having really poor sleep and then just taking anti-inflammatories because their knee's sore. You want to re- really make sure you decrease the sensitivity of those tissues. We want to talk about all of that, all those recovery strategies we've already mentioned in this episode. Well, definitely, you know, we know psychological stress is associated with increased pain. And that's probably, you know, I'm sure there's some survival instinct reasons for that. And, you know, you're 100% right that as well the inflammation from stress, because we know inflammation and stress and mental health are related, is also going to worsen the knee pain as well. Um, which exercise is amazing because it has a short-term inflammatory effect, but its overall impact is anti-inflammatory. And that's why, you know, exercise is actually really good for arthritis. Yeah. And you might be able to help me out with this one as well. In the acronym, the injury acronym of peace and love with um, when it comes to acute injuries and overuse injuries, the the A in peace and love stands for avoid, avoid anti-inflammations. Uh, I think that would be for overuse injuries like a tendinopathy and those kind of soft tissue injuries. Um, can you shine any light on that? So what they're talking about is an anti-inflammatory, as it says, it's decreasing inflammation, and it's actually inflammation that is involved in the healing process. As an example, you know, you cut your skin, and as it's healing, it gets a bit red and itchy, and that's actually you know inflammation that's causing that red and itchiness, but it's also helping the tissue repair. You know, we have a, a sprained muscle. That's the same thing. The inflammation is actually involved in the healing process. A sprained ankle, often it feels quite warm. That's inflammation. It's part of the healing. So there is, you know, thoughts now that, you know, anti-inflammatories would actually inhibit part of that healing process. A soft tissue injury is very different to, you know, maybe some sore, feeling a little bit aches and pains and sore muscles after a heavy training session. And, you know, I think that's all right every now and then to take an anti-inflammatory. There is, you know, theoretical um, theoretical risks and concerns of taking anti-inflammatories could decrease, you know, adaptions to training. So let's say you've done a really hard session and your, your muscles are sore. You know, taking the anti-inflammatory could decrease those adaptions. It's important to think about... Yes, this is, you know, on a scientific perspective, it's right. The anti-inflammatories will decrease some of those inflammatory cytokines, but they're definitely not going to decrease all of them. And it's important to look at outcomes, not just methodology. You know, because often we can look at amazing scientific studies and things make lots of sense from a, you know, cellular level, but do we actually see the outcomes in, you know, in people? So what was I saying? I guess what I was saying is anti-inflammatories, you know, do have that anti um you know, they can decrease some of those maybe adaptions, but if you need the anti-inflammatories to, you know, fit in your next training session the next day, maybe it is beneficial from a, you know, a whole perspective, you know, get that extra training in, potentially lose a little bit of the adaptions from the anti-inflammatories, but they're not going to all be gone. It's not like they can just magically decrease all inflammatory or inflammation from that hard session. Yeah, so some good takeaways around the the use of anti-inflammations as well. That's really nice. It's nuanced and complex and there's no strict, you know, guidelines. But, you know, we are saying now for an acute injury, try and avoid anti-inflammatories for three days. You know, your sprained ankles, torn muscle. After that, if it's still hurting a little bit, you're probably fine to take them because, you know, most of that healing should start to happen, especially with like an ankle sprain. Yeah, well, at least I think as long as the listener can go away with knowing that it's not just the answer. Like if you have an injury, it's not just take anti-inflammatories and that's the, the direct like response you should do for an injury like that. Great. 
we have covered so much on today's episode, um, more than I thought we would. But I guess with your level of expertise and the amount of knowledge you have, we take on these tangents that are full of value. So, um, hope I didn't waffle too much. <laughs> no, it was good. It, people waffle, but people wa- like this type of waffling is just more and more value, which is what I love. So, um, I really love your ability to like seek out the the most recent evidence and you seem extremely passionate around like the the people that you serve and your level of like the field that you've chosen you've just constantly like looking at the research and following you through social media and that I can tell that you have a passion for constantly wanting to learn and constantly wanting to educate people so we tend to share the same um, ambitions with that just trying to relay and get people the right information so if someone wants to learn more about your um your content and love hearing about what the expertise that you have where can people find more about you oh firstly i'll say thank you that's really nice of you to say that brody and i think as you said passionate about being up to date with evidence things are changing so drastically you look at how people used to train for endurance events you know 50 years ago and it was, you know, hard training sessions. Now we're seeing that what's most important is, you know, consistency and what maintains a long athletic career is, you know, more low volume training and then, you know, a little bit of really hard speed work. So that's why it's so important to stay up to date with knowledge rather than say, you know, this is how we've always done things because knowledge is changing and research and especially in the sports world. So, and, you know, the peace and love and the avoiding of anti-inflammatories is a great example of that everyone used to recommend to ice injuries straight afterwards. So, um, and I think that's where it's so good for practitioners to keep their egos in check. You know, it's nothing wrong with you if you used to do something that we've now realised might not be the right method. It's just that science is evolving and you want to be part of that journey and do the best thing for your athlete. So, anyway, so thank you. Um, and if people, yeah, want to follow or um, see any of the content I share, I mainly do stuff on Instagram, which is I've got a blog called Dr. Izzy K. Smith. I also, if you're interested in mental health, have a mental health podcast called Behind the Uniform, which is, uh, was partnered with Fox Sports, so a lot of athletes. Quite some heavy mental health stuff, but I think you know, really valuable as well. And yeah, I think that's the main, the main, the main um, platforms. Fantastic. I'll link those into the show notes, including the the podcast and including the the Instagram link. So if people want to go there, they can just click on the the show notes, click on the link and it'll take you straight there. Izzy, once again, thanks for coming on. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.